Good afternoon and welcome to Dateline New Haven. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines of the stories that make Connecticut tick and New Haven tick. And nobody makes both those places tick more than our guest today, State Senate President Martin Looney of New Haven. Another session has ended. A lot happened. And as we do every year, Senator Looney is going to help break it down for us. Hey, Marty, thanks so much for coming in as usual. Great, Paul. Great to be with you again. I always like to mention you were the first guest ever on WNHHFM back in 2015, and it's great to have you back. Good to be continuing. So, Marty, another session ended in Hartford. You were right in the middle of it as the state senate president. Overall, how did the session go, legislative session? Uh, overall, I think it, it was a really, really good session. One of the things that we were able to do was to uh, increase the progressivity of our state income tax. That's been a struggle since the original income tax was adopted in 1991 at a flat 4.5%. That was out of necessity because uh, at that time I, I was in the House and the, the votes were there in the House to pass a more progressive income tax, but not in the Senate. Uh, until then, Senator Bill Nickerson, the Republican senator from Greenwich, came forward and said he was willing to support income tax, but only a flat rate one. And uh, that's because Lowell Weicker was the governor, and he had this odd coalition, right? Yes. He did have an urban base. He had taken the Democratic vote away running as an independent, but he also came from Greenwich, and he was a pharmaceutical heir, and those were his people, too. That's right. So, so there was this criticism that the middle was cut out, that the rich benefited by having this flat tax. But many of them did because— uh, at that time, we had a capital gains tax that was uh, probably 7% uh, plus for the, for the wealthy. So some of the people whose income primarily comes from capital gains actually got a tax cut. Uh, but it was by taxing all income at 45 But again, that was the, the deal that had to be cut because the, uh, the then uh, Democratic leadership in the state Senate, uh, they were one, there was one vote short of being able to pass it with the Democratic vote. So it had to be drawn to Nickerson specifications. And uh, that was, uh, and then for the last 32 years now, we've been trying to build more progressivity into the income tax after starting with that flat rate. And we've succeeded by, by at various times, uh, creating uh, different tiers of income tax at different levels. And I think what we did this year was probably a, a very significant progressive move in taxing <clears throat> the lowest uh, rate of income at, at, uh, <clears throat> that had been taxed at 3% will now be at 2 and the next tier at 5% will be taxed at 45 So uh, while we weren't able to uh, get the governor to agree to add a tier at the upper end, you know, to go from 6.99 to maybe 7.5 at the upper end or, or establish a separate tax on capital gains, uh, we, we did establish greater progressivity uh, and give relief to, to low-income taxpayers. It's been interesting to watch you wage this fight over the years, Marty, because you're always got to run into political reality. You have to count enough votes to get something passed. You mentioned what happened back in 80, and that happens every year. So let me tell you how that looked to me, Marty, from the sidelines. So Ned Lamont is a Democratic governor. But his model was Weicker, right? He always says Weicker was the ultimate governor. He's really a Fairfield County Republican before Republicans turned MAGA. And, uh, he's, and he said, we're gonna, no matter what, we're going to cut taxes. Nobody's going to raise taxes. He's not going to be Bill. I thought this, he was just doing that for re-election, but you no, know, he's doing that for good. He's saying, I'm a guy who doesn't raise taxes. And you and many Democrats, especially from cities, have been arguing for years that it's unfair that the very wealthy in Connecticut, when you count state and local taxes, pay something like a third as much in their taxes percentage-wise than a bus driver, than a teacher, than a um, cop. So you've been trying to whittle away at it, but you got to work with a governor from your own party who's unwilling to count the rich, to make the richest of the rich pay just a little more in taxes. So you're working within those constraints. Right. That's so you're exactly telling me right. that you want a big victory by giving the tax break to the lowest of the low. And it seemed to me that there was no other option for you. 
looking at the back and the sidelines more broadly, I wonder how a Democratic Party led by a person who's unwilling to tax the rich the same way we tax middle class and working class people, how there's ever going to be a, a, a more fundamental fix to the tax system because you do need money to run government. So if tax cuts are what are championed, and they are because of the, what you're working within, are you ever going to have enough money to run government? Is the solution to tax unfairness just cutting taxes for more and more people, or will that create unfairness for those same people by limiting government's ability to deliver? Well, uh, that's our challenge. Uh, on the other hand, uh, businesses were complaining that uh, they didn't like the tax cut that uh, we agreed to with the governor because it only affected individuals. They wanted to see more tax cuts aimed particularly at business. And the CBIA and others said, well, there's really not that much in this for us. And uh, they were criticizing the governor and the General Assembly for not doing more and business the taxes. Democrats, and again, this isn't your position. This is position of people like Lamont. Are you playing into the Republican game by competing for who can cut taxes more? I mean, Clinton did this too. Clinton was constrained with the Republican Congress, right? So he couldn't, the way, only way he could help the poorest was by doing the earned income tax credit. That's what you did here too. Yes. In an environment of tax cutting, and Rosa did this too, the lawyer in Congress, you have no other option if you want to help the working middle class and the poor than to cut taxes for the poor rather than raise taxes on the rich. Long term, are the Democrats, I'm not criticizing this because I don't have to run for office, I don't have to pass laws. Those of us who are on the sidelines wonder whether in the end the Democrats should have fought a more fundamental battle to instead tax the rich or whether you have to accept reality year by year because these are real people's lives. Well, uh, the, the, the fact is that uh, the governor would not have signed a bill right. that, that raised income tax on the rich and we didn't have the votes to override it. Uh, the House clearly didn't because they didn't even have uh, two-thirds uh, of Democrats and they have a very large and substantial moderate caucus of uh, approximately 20 to 23 members. So on some of these issues, they would have trouble getting to 76, uh, let alone to 101. You know, I believe in the Senate, we, uh, we could have passed a number of other progressive measures, but um, not, by a, not by a veto-proof margin. And, uh, you know, for instance, we were able to pass the, the, uh, uh, the uh, paid sick days bill in the Senate, but uh, the House didn't take that, that one up. So, so uh, again, we're, as you said, we're operating under constraints of what will what will the governor sign? Um, and uh, is there anything that, uh, that we could get to 24 votes and 101 uh, to override? And this year there, there was not. So, I mean, I'm not at all criticizing what you have to do day to day. I'm wondering, right. so as the strategy, I know you do a lot of work on election years supporting certain candidates. Is the answer that you legislate what you can get year to year? And then on election season, you really work hard to support candidates who will support tax justice. Well, yes, you know, we have, uh, after the uh, 2016 election, when we were tied 18 to 18, uh, we have increased our strength in every election since then. We went to uh, uh, 22. We had a big jump in, in 2018 to uh, 22 senators, uh, 23 in 2024 in 22. So we have made uh, uh, progress. But again, uh, it, we have to deal with the reality that we have a, a largely suburban state. There were probably only 10 senators who represent districts where they would get almost no pushback uh, from a tax increase on, on the wealthy. Um, wow. Everyone else has, uh, you know, at least uh, uh, has some significant elements of suburbia mm -hmm. uh, in their districts. They look at it, uh, the three most needy cities, New Haven, Hartford, and Bridgeport. That's only six senators out of 36. And in fact, even those six also represent other towns, like I represent Hamden, uh, Senator Winfield represents West Haven, uh, the Bridgeport senators each represent... Uh, uh, one represents Stratford, the other represents uh, Monroe and Trumbull. Uh, the Hartford senators represent uh, Wethersfield and uh, Bloomfield and Windsor as well. So, 
you know, that's the reality we're facing. There's also here. the framing challenge you have. Because I think, tell me if you agree with this, you know, you started in state office in 1980. That was also the year we, have, we elected Ronald Reagan. Right, that's right. 81, yeah, with, the 80 election was my first uh, state rep, yes. Would you agree with me that that changed the framing of this debate to this day? Because of being pegged someone who raises taxes, that has become a way you cast Democrats as being against the everyday person, even if what you're really pushing is to shift the burden from the everyday person to the ultra-worthy. Would you agree with me that not just in Connecticut, but nationally, Democrats are wrestling with how you combat that image? Like, Lamont has been firm. I'm never going to be called someone who pays, raised taxes, even if what I did was raise it on the top 1% and raise it lower than everyone else. Is that the challenge? That is the challenge. The, the messaging challenge is that uh, uh, the people often, even those people who often would benefit uh, from uh, greater state support, greater state aid, especially uh, greater municipal aid because it would help lower property taxes. Uh, even those people say, you know, don't raise taxes. You know, so uh, I was at uh, a Dunkin' Donuts uh, some time ago, and a guy buttonholed me, and he said, you know, we, <laughs> you got to do more for the for the elderly. Um, you've got to do more for the poor. You got to do more for the disabled. You got to do more for the people who are uh, uh, who need assistance from home health care workers. You got to do all those things. And by the way, don't raise any taxes. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about that conversation. <laughs> what did that tell you, that conversation? Uh, that told me that, that people have, an un, in many cases, an unrealistic view uh, about, uh, uh, about the realities of government. And it points out that government services are, in fact, popular and broadly supported, uh, but raising the revenues to pay for them is not. Is that new or is that exacerbated by the, what Reagan ushered in? in oh, I think Reagan uh, uh, accelerated that, I think, uh, because of uh, the president, of course, has the bully pulpit more than anyone else. And, and he also that, wrote on the coattails of a very effective messaging movement. A, a lot of the right-wing foundations funded by billionaires watched what Ralph Nader did in the 60s and 70s, where he created nonprofit advocacy groups that framed issues, got us environmental regulation, for instance, consumer safety, protection. They said, we got to do that, too. And there were all these foundations, like the Olin Foundation, others, that Heritage Foundation, that I think did a lot of the groundwork for Reagan and have pretty dominated the debate since. I think they've gotten better at convincing the average person in America that taxing the rich hurts them. Oh, I think that's right. And a lot was done, not only Reagan, but then the Bush administration after him. You had 12, cons 12 consecutive years of Republican presidents before Clinton, who was certainly moderate and uh, 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 was somebody who was uh, sort of a third-way Democrat, was not really a, you know, a firebrand uh, progressive advocate. And, and then you know, eight more years of, uh, of uh, George W. Bush after that. And then, of course, Obama... Uh, only had a Democratic Congress in the first two years of his first term uh, when he got the And the focus was on Obamacare. Yeah, and the focus was on Obamacare during that two years. And then uh, after that, he was stymied by a Republican Congress after, after 2010. You're listening to Dateline New Haven. We have the pleasure today of having State Senate President Martin Looney of New Haven as our guest at 103.5 M, live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. So another thing on the sidelines, and we, those of us who aren't at the Capitol sometimes forget how hard it is to pass legislation how many years it takes, what you need to shave off a bill in order to get over the stick line. You got some stuff over the finish line this year that was really hard. When I'm looking at it, tell me if these are among what you think are the highlights. For years, we've been trying to get red light and speed cameras to catch speeders in New, in New Haven. Permission from the state to, to do it in a way that we want to do it. We had permission to do it a different way. And that it was really Democratic interest groups that were part of the opposition to that. We got that passed this year. Baby bonds. We, you guys had passed the law, and the governor went and funded. The Democratic governor went and fund setting aside $11,000 to 
to the poorest babies born to claim when they're 18 years old to use for housing or job or college. You got that over finally. And you got a gun, another gun control bill over to ban open carry and to close the loophole on assault bans. Were those three of the biggies, and how did you finally get them over this year when they hadn't passed other years? You're right, Paul. They were absolutely three of the biggies. I want to give uh, a particular uh, uh, credit to Representative Roland Lamar of New Haven, who was the uh, House Transportation Chair, uh, did a great job on that, along with uh, <coughs> uh, Senator Cohen from our, our 12th district along the along the shoreline. And uh, uh, that was a challenge because in the past, as you know, uh, there had been seemingly momentum in that direction, but it had always been uh, opposed by groups who said that this is just a, a money grab and a gouge that's going to take money from low-income people. It won't really be focused on safety, but only on, on a money raiser. But I think the, the way this year's bill was constructed, I think uh, it allayed a number of those fears that the uh, uh, the price of the ticket will be uh, will be lower, uh, and the money that's collected uh, will not go into the municipal general fund, but will have to be used for transportation infrastructure. And it also purposes. incorporates some of the concerns about their, in some of the racist states where they used it as a way to just pile up fees on people of color. That it's going to be reviewed after a couple of years. Absolutely, absolutely. So there is a, uh, uh, in fact, a review date in it to see whether it is accomplishing its goal. So that was one that. How about was, baby bonds? That amazed me. That was passed. And a governor who was born with a lifetime fortune that he inherited from a Democratic Party was not was blocking funding for something you passed. Yes. To yeah. have the poorest kids have a little bit of money to have some of those same advantages. How did you deal with that? What was happening behind the scenes with, well, the, uh, with the uh, Senate leadership? The governor was, uh, you know, his argument was that the benefits of that were uh, so far out in the future that he would rather uh, support things that would have a, a sooner benefit, a uh, quicker benefit. But uh, uh, I think that... Uh, uh, our, our treasurer and uh, uh, our uh, legislative leadership were uh, a portion to the, were really focusing on the fact that the poor kids who would benefit from this, who were born on uh, Medicaid, and uh, the one way of trying to give them some, um, some fund, like, a, uh, like an inheritance that my middle-class kids might get when they're in their, uh, in their teens or 20s, would be to set up this fund uh, that would uh, invest a little over $3,000 for every kid that's born on Medicaid and would grow to um, at least eleven or twelve thousand dollars by the time they were eighteen, and if they didn't access it uh, until later in their twenties, it could be larger than that. It just seemed to be uh, a way of building wealth among those who who don't have wealth, who don't have inherited wealth, uh, and often are not dead. Uh, but not you had already passed that; families. it wasn't funded. So one of the governor's concerns was that he didn't think he should bond for it. And one thing he's done well is to prove our fiscal condition, our fiscal ratings, and partly that's not by running up bonding. Was he right about that? Was it better that you found a different income stream for it? Well, I think it was better that we found that, that the treasurer was able to identify a different income stream and uh, because that, that took away the controversy of, of bonding for something that's not uh, not a capital expense, uh, really. It, certainly it is human capital, but it's not uh, bricks and mortar capital. So I think uh, Treasurer Russell did a very good job in identifying that fund that had been set aside as a, uh, as a guarantee fund when we refinanced certain debt and was no longer needed uh, and could be used for that purpose. So it wound up actually will cost us less than bonding would have in, in the long term. So uh, I think he did a good job. So Actually, that's an the example original, of how even if people disagree in the legislative process, sometimes having to compromise can produce a better result? It can, absolutely. It makes you more creative sometimes to, uh, to find a better way to do things. So that uh, uh, the original concept came from uh, Treasurer Wooden, but I, I think that uh, uh, Treasurer Russell really helped get it across the finish line in an, in an efficient way. What do you think about that? So we do have ourselves in a, in a fiscal position in the state that's really the envy, right, of parts of the country because we have three years projecting the future of billion-dollar surpluses. 
our ratings have gone up. Our, we've maxed out the rainy day fund. We didn't just use the COVID money to just pay one-time expenses. We've cut our bonding. Is that something you're proud of? Or is that, is, do you think that the fact that the Wall Street Journal editorials are praising us for our fiscal management, we had the debt diet for bonding, was that the right thing? Uh, it was for a period of time because we really were uh, in a position that uh, our our uh, uh, our debt rating was being was being harmed. I think now we have stabilized to the point that we uh, that we could afford uh, to do more now uh, for those who are mostly in need, but without really violating the uh, the spirit or intent of the spending cap or the the other so-called guardrails that the governor talked about. In fact, this uh, uh, session when we wanted to try to find ways to spend more and perhaps uh, <clears throat> do more on the tax side. Uh, um, and the governor said that, you know, he wouldn't violate the spending cap. Uh, uh, Speaker Ritter came up with one proposal, and I came up with another. Uh, the speaker's proposal was to set aside some of the additional sales tax revenue that had come in, mostly because of inflation over the last couple of years, and uh, do a revenue intercept to intercept that before it came into the general fund and set that aside for additional spending. Uh, and I had uh, proposed that we uh, go back to uh, the way the spending cap was defined uh, prior to the, the budget deal of 2017, where we had to deal with the Republicans on that would be to put spending uh, and aid to distressed municipalities outside the spending cap. So we had those two proposals. Uh, the speaker was pushing one, I was pushing the other. Uh, we were supporting each other's, and the governor regarded both of those as gimmicks and refused to, to go along with them. So, but there are, you know, again, there are, there are ways, I think, to honor the spending cap. My own view is that the spending cap can be viewed as two ways. One, as a straitjacket uh, that requires you to ignore essential needs in the present because you're you've adopted this discipline that's supposed to apply regardless of the circumstances at the time. And the other is to regard it more as a, uh, you know, a support brace or something that can be adjusted uh, as needed while still providing constraints. It sounds like the, the opposite, the argument that calls it a gimmick, those moves and saying it's too short-term compared to long-term. That sounds like the exact opposite argument the governor was making about baby bonds. He was saying that that's long-term and you need something shorter. Term. Right. He was saying that it was too long-term to think about the first benefits wouldn't accrue until kind of mind 18 years in the future. Do you feel like you're dealing with Weicker again? And this is not an insult at Weicker. Weicker really was a, an independent governor who's part Republican, part Democrat. He dealt with both sides to support what used to be the Republican philosophy of fiscal conservative, social liberalism, and that he really was the broker between two parties. He really wasn't of either party. Do you think the same is true of Lamont? Uh, I think it's a very different time because Lamont was, in fact, elected as a, uh, as a Democrat. And uh, uh, Weicker, I think, to... Uh, you know, to his great credit, was willing to support uh, an income tax. I think he was willing to support even a more progressive income That's tax true. than the one we actually passed. Yeah. Uh, because, uh, interestingly, I, if you're calling, uh, Bill Nickerson, who was the, the linchpin of all that, uh, was elected to the state Senate in 1990. And the, the Democrat, oh, wow, he defeated term. that race, was Ned Lamont, who was a candidate oh, for the state Senate. Oh, isn't that So if Lamont had been there, there might not have ever been an income tax. I don't know. Uh, That's it, fascinating, it, Marty. It, at least was, for nerds <laughs> like us. Yeah, like there was a three-way race that year. There was the the, the incumbent Republican guy named uh, Ben uh, Benvenuto. Uh, I remember that. Yeah. He lost the nomination to Nickerson, but ran under Weicker's banner, though ran as a uh, Connecticut Party candidate. Uh, and uh, so it was the it was. So Nickerson. why couldn't Ned slip in then if the Democrats well, were uh, split? It was uh, uh, as I recall. I think uh, uh, Nickerson got uh, about. Um, 12,500 votes, and uh, I think Benvenuto got 9,500, and Lamont oh. got 7,500. So do you think he took from the, actually from Lamont's vote? Were there Democrats who used to like him? Was he sort of a, a moderate who got Democratic votes? So did he, in fact, take the Lamont vote, or was Fairfield County still more Republican? At that time, Fairfield County was still solidly Republican, and 
you know, more moderate Republicans, as you said, uh, not the, the MAGA Republicans, but they had that strong core of uh, people like uh, Weicker, Weicker and Stu McKinney, and they were linking, you know, close links to the New York Republican Party, Rockefeller and Javits, uh, and the moderate party there. But uh, so the, uh, the, what was mainstream Republicanism in Fairfield County was very different uh, back then. Marty, this term also, there was some major bonding, the stuff that isn't usually the subject of a lot of headlines, a lot of debate that actually is going to benefit New Haven in terms of investing in our city. What were some of those examples in this? Uh, well, one is there's going to be a, a major mass transportation initiative, uh, which uh, when it's uh, completed will be somewhat similar to what the uh, the fast track is between Hartford and, and New Britain at uh, 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 Go New Haven, which will be, New Haven will be a hub with uh, uh, with buses, express buses going out to various places in the, in the suburbs uh, and providing greater uh, bus I thought what it was, was through our, unless I'm confusing with something else, I thought they were going to have dedicated high-speed bus lanes with limited stops that go from the core of New Haven through central arteries. Like yes, that's Dixwell right. Avenue to Hamden, Hamden, West Haven, and other places. Grand right. Avenue, Congress Yep, Avenue. it'll be, uh, be express buses to, uh, to designated You know what's uh, interesting about that to me? That is a slam dunk victory for safe street people. They said we want more mass transit, yes. more options, more bus. The same week that passed... Oakland had a headline where safe street people are against their version of that system. You know why? It's just so interesting. <laughs> these people are getting killed there because where they have the fast lanes that cut into these major arteries. So there was one lane for regular traffic and one lane for these bus lanes. So all these people were driving in the bus lanes and fast and running over people. <laughs> so in those neighborhoods, they were actually saying the same people who wanted the bus lanes. Sometimes I feel like there are unintended consequences we yeah, can never yeah. see of everything we try to do to fix a problem. Not everything. No, but, but I, I think, you know, uh, people who live in middle class neighborhoods where everybody has a car uh, don't realize that there are many census tracts in our, in our major cities where almost half the families don't have cars. So they depend on buses to get to work. And that's... Uh, and that's been a real challenge for many years. So I think this will help in that regard. I really like our buses. I think yes. they're clean. I think the drivers do a good job. They do. I think yes. I, I, I'm glad we're building it up. I, I like riding the bus. Yeah, and I think this that that's there's 20 million in state funding going into that, and I think there's uh, perhaps 25 million in federal funding going into that uh, overall. Why is it taking so long? I think it's a 2029. Like they're going to start building it in 2026. It really takes four years to design it. Well, I guess it does. That's what the uh, that's what the engineers uh, tell us to. Uh, to really get it get it underway, and of course, uh, and more buses will have to be uh, have to be purchased too. Uh, so those of us on the sidelines really sometimes don't understand that government's harder than you think. That's it is. right. That's right. You also yeah. said there was money for parks, Marty. Oh yeah, we had uh, an uh, initiative in, in New Haven that uh, we were able to get um, two hundred fifty thousand dollars for a, a park renovation plan for the uh, Quinnipiac River Park along Front Street along the river near the near the Grand Avenue Bridge. Remember that uh, when that was the Shivoni Scrapyard? That was the Shivoni Scrapyard. I remember in the 80s, that in, was a mess. You absolutely, it was a mess in there. the 70s. And then we <laughs> yeah. finally, you know, that was finally cleaned up and it became that park and we used to have the Fairhaven Day uh, it's celebrations over there. a great gathering place and a good passive kind of hangout Yeah, place. very good passive hand. So that's good. There's going to be money for that and uh, also some money for uh, Fort Worcester in the Annex, which is uh, really a historic old site and uh, $100,000 for a cleanup there an extra $100,000 for the Annex Little League. Uh, Another hundred thousand to add to money that we uh, designated some years ago for improvements at Do you Lighthouse Park. Do you feel as an elected official who's dedicated your adult life to the negotiation and legislation that that's the stuff that sometimes has the biggest impact on the people who live where you live? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, several, we don't talk about it much. Several years ago, there, I yeah. was able to uh, to get the funding for to uh, to renovate the the Fort Hale Fishing Pier, 
And that I really means that. a lot to people. Is there people who fish there regularly? Or like, do you drive by there and you say, "I helped do that"? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> do you ever catch fish? Uh, I do. You know, I, uh, well, I used to fish there a lot with my son when he was little, and then later with my my grandson before it was destroyed in the last storm. But my my young granddaughters like to go out there now and just uh, walk around and talk to the fishermen and see what they've caught. What kind of fish do you like? Uh, well, usually we just uh, sometimes we catch uh, you know small. Uh, uh, We've never really caught the big blues that you can sometimes get there in the fall, but uh, some of the smaller fish, and we usually don't eat them, but just for the sake of catching them, it's nice. <laughs> Martin Looney, State Center President here on WNHHFM State Line New Haven, talking about the session that just ended in Hartford's General Assembly. So what didn't get over? The, every year there's stuff you're pushing. Some gets over the finish line. A lot got over this year. Some doesn't get over the finish line. What's some of the projects that didn't make it? Uh, well, one was the... Uh, uh, extending uh, paid paid uh, paid sick days. Uh, right now, we're, we're about 12 years ago, we passed a bill. I think it was in, in two, 2012, about 11 years ago, to uh, require employers who have uh, 50 or more employees to provide uh, paid sick days. We were looking to to uh, provide universal uh, paid sick days. Uh, I mean, passed, for even like three employers. Yeah, even even small employers. So we passed a, a bill in the Senate uh, that would would move toward that, and the House did take it up. And uh, there may be some interest in. Uh, Revisiting that, uh, you know, if not uh, in a special session, um, the uh, uh, in the next session, I think it's important now to move is on that bill. Is there going to be bill. a special session? There may. One of the things that we we're discussing is that uh, uh, the bill to provide uh, to make Connecticut part of a compact to move its primary date, presidential primary date, earlier in the process. Uh, that was one that didn't get across the finish line either. So, uh, uh, as part would of the that state, be with other New England states, yes, as part of with some other states uh, in the region. So. Uh, I think we would have to adopt that by, by September if we were going to make it operational for next year. So that's, uh, that's one incentive for coming back into a special session. What would be another thing in special session? Well, that, the agree- if, we can, uh, if we can get agreement on the, uh, on the paid sick days, that would, be a, that would be another thing that could be added on. Well, did it just not make it in the House because there's so many bills at the end that somebody needs to push it, or was there not enough support? I, I think there was a problem with the, uh, the moderate caucus in the House. So would that change with a special session? It like? might because uh, because there's been more uh, more pressure and advocacy uh, since then. So we'd have to see what. And it uh, requires no state money, correct? No, that's right. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting, Marty. What about uh, you? Also had a you had a really interesting mansion tax you were proposing for assessed on properties over one point five million dollars. What what happened with that one? Well, that, that's again that one that uh, ran into opposition. Part of uh, the problem with that is that many people believe well you're going to start with mansions, but then you're going to uh, lower it uh, to properties of less value, and people already find the property tax the most burdensome tax they they pay. But it, it seems to me that a mansion tax and keeping it at a mansion tax, keeping it only at very valuable properties, does make sense because of the fact that uh, the very wealthy, creative people can often find ways to evade taxes. Uh, but you can't really avoid the property tax if you own a property; <laughs> it's assessed at a certain rate. The tax, the mill you rate, can is hire a lawyer property. to get it assessed just below the you can maybe you can change yeah maybe you can challenge your assessment so you come in just below the the level mm-hmm. where it where it applies mm-hmm. but uh, one of the other things we're, we're we're looking at too uh i had a bill issue that we did in the senate uh, didn't go in the house but uh it's going to be studied by the finance committee over the interim is looking at the fact that um uh, for tax purposes uh we assess property at 70 percent. i saw that one market that was value. bill 770 you know i've talked about in past years because the thing i never understood was why when we get taxed our property is assessed at 70% of its value rather than 100. I never understood why that was. That's right. And there's a windfall for, the, for those owners of valuable property in that too. So if you've got you know, a, a million-dollar house, a market value of a million, 
you're getting $300,000 off that market value and you're assessed at only 700. But if your house, modest house worth 200,000, you're taxed on, on 140. So you're only getting 60,000 off. Do you know the, anything the about value. the history about that, Marty? How did it come about? Back, 30, about back in the 70s, uh, a law was created to uh, create uniform assessments because at that time, uh, there were some differences. And the, uh, from what I understand, the 70 was, uh, was uh, adopted because it, would have been, it had been adopted in some other states. But also, uh, part of the strategy was, the practical strategy was that uh, municipalities wanted to have it adopted at a rate that would not trigger too many assessment appeals. Because the closer you got to 100%, the more likely people might, uh, might disagree and say, well, I really couldn't sell my house for that value. I'm going to you know, but that just means they're confused. They're yeah. not. They're not realizing that it's that their assessment is only seventy percent of what you're saying the market value. Is. Right. But I'm saying. But if you atta uh, attach it closer closer to the market value, people might object more and say, "Well, this is a pretty high assessment. I don't really believe my property has that high a market okay, value." Okay. So I'm wondering about the policy reason yeah. behind it. So I understand that you're saying people. If I hear you right, municipalities are telling you we have to fool people and think we're valuing it less than it is, or else they're going to appeal too much. That seems, if that's true, that seems like a horrible policy reason. And you're pointing that out by trying to make it up to 75. Right. But I'd what, like to, was, uh, what was We'd the, like to actually go, I talked to John Fonfair about this, and he would like to see it go to 100. And uh, yeah. then you really can, I would too, I would support that uh, if we could do it. And that would then, uh, every town's grand list would immediately increase substantially. And, and then you could uh, reduce the, uh, the mill rate substantially everywhere. And because we have a tremendous uh, disparity. But Marty, what I don't get about back in the 70s is the part I never understood. So you've just told me the real reason they did it. They were worried too many people would appeal. That but was one of the was, reasons, What was I the think. policy reason they gave that you don't assess a property for 100% of its market value? Uh, I think it was that uh, it was that uh, that seemed to be a, uh, a reasonable way of uh, pegging a value to something that might be too volatile if you tried to track market value all the time. But you're still tracking market you're value. You're still market tracking market value, percent. but, uh, uh, but so I, I think it was mostly the, the political shock people thought they'd get if all of a sudden their assessment went way up. So it's one of those cases, it's like when you're talking about you want services, but you don't want taxes, you don't want to tax the rich. Yes. You're kind of, I feel like when we do politics and government, we sometimes have to not, the people aren't honest. Not you, I'm not talking about you, Marty. I'm saying the, because you're fighting this. It feels like a very dishonest argument and very disrespectful to people's intelligence by saying, you're going to be too freaked out if you know how much your values are going out. So by making it 70%, we're going to make you not as upset, even though the reality is exactly the same. The number of dollars you're paying are exactly the same. Right, and right. in fact, there's a horrible policy implication right. in that the wealthy get a bigger break than you do. Yeah. And we see also in terms of the, the uh, net grand list per capita in Connecticut, this contrast is so stark that uh, in Greenwich, the, the net grand list per capita is $700,000. And in New Britain and Hartford, it's 70000 so, which is why Greenwich can provide a rich array of services and have a mill rate of 10 so or 11. this is another example of how when you're limited by political reality from taxing the rich, you go the earned tax increase. Over the years, you've been limited by how much even the Democrats are willing to go to have honest tax fairness. So you've tried to look at how cars are assessed and say, you know, like tax so that people have the same car in Greenwich pay less tax than someone who has the same car in New Haven. It seems like you have to work within a box. Right, and that's another thing we did this year is to continue the uh, the adjustment on the car tax that we set the car tax cap a couple of years ago at 32.46 mills. So any community with a, a mill rate above that for their uh, for their real property get a break on their car tax. And New Haven's new mill rate I think is 37.5, but they'll they'll be paying only 32.4 on the uh, on the cars, so they'll get uh, reimbursement for the state from the difference. It'll really make a huge difference to towns like Hamden 
who have a mill rate over 50, but yet they'll only have to pay 32.46 on their uh, So this is all well. kind of a contest between the suburbs and cities about who's, many ways. who's yeah. going to have money and power. Mm-hmm. And that just like with the ratepayers are trying to portray it in a way where they don't feel they're paying as much. Are we trying to make it easier for suburban legislators not to get blowback from the constituents if we want to have a fairer distribution of wealth and taxation by making it not look the same? Well, I think you have to be creative in some ways because uh, uh, suburban legislators have very different kinds of uh, constituencies. And in order to elect Democrats from those districts, you know, we, we've got, to, uh, we've got to, uh, to find ways to uh, package proposals that, uh, uh, that uh, highlight the equity without having it be um, so threatening that people think it's a, a confiscatory tax, which is exactly what their Republican opponents will say. State Senator Martin Looney, the present pro tem of the Senate, in state office since 1980 here on Dateline New Haven, talking about the latest legislative session, WNHH-FM. So Marty had some big victories in a previous session that now have been put into place. One of them was cannabis legalization, where we're going to make it have stopped getting arrested for owning or smoking or using marijuana. We're licensed people. How has that worked out? I think that's worked out well. It's, it, it's still a, in its uh, developing stages, and uh, I think the state's going to get increased revenue from that as time goes on, but it was... Uh, necessary to do. So many people's lives over the years have been been ruined by uh, convictions for possession of relatively small amounts of, of cannabis. It's the process again, like so much, started uh, gradually uh, back with a, a bill to decriminalize uh, certain uh, small amounts of cannabis and, and other drugs. That was one that uh, uh, Tony Harp uh, and I, when she was in the Senate, introduced after uh, a law p- uh, passed or after a referendum question passed in Massachusetts, decriminalizing small amounts of possession of small amounts. So we, we decided that well, public opinion in Connecticut is probably very similar to what it is in Massachusetts. So we introduced that bill. The first year, it only got a public hearing in the Judiciary Committee. Uh, Governor Relsh said she would be opposed to it. But the next year, 2011, uh, we introduced it again. Dan Malloy was behind it, and we passed it, and it became law. So that was how we began to move toward, uh, toward what our current law is on, on marijuana. Well, now, one of the goals was social equity, they called it which is people who are most harmed by the drug war, communities of color, people arrested lives, turned upside down, get the opportunities to make the money on this legalization for licenses. How has that worked out? I know the Social Equity Council, I think the head of it left, I think it was Andrea, right, uh, Comer, was it who was running it? And she left, and in New Haven, we had some arguments where people of color were denied licenses. Have there been issues with that, or are those just hiccups in getting it right? Well, I, I think it, it requires constant uh, vigilance, because what we've seen in in other states because we were not one of the original adopters. I think we're in a position to, to view what happened in some other states where, where you had uh, uh, people of, of significant wealth uh, coming in behind uh, the, uh, the supposed social equity uh, 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 entrepreneur who was really being funded by somebody else. You know? And uh, so we're trying to make sure that the social equity partner is a real partner. That was uh, a catch-22 here in New Haven because yes. there was a woman who, of color who was in the business of medical marijuana but she said, because I'm black, I can't get the loan. So she partnered with all those wealthy national companies, and she got denied a license because they said, you're a front for them. She said, I'm not a front. I got, that's a, that's a tough question. And he said, I'm not a front. I'm, you know, I get right. to run it. And, and that continues 51%. to be a problem because uh, marijuana is still illegal at the federal level. So people cannot use the conventional banking system to get loans because, you know, uh, uh, banks are federally regulated, and they are now, uh, they would be violating federal law if they gave loans for that purposes. So that's why you have to go to other other. Uh, other equity markets, which uh, often uh, uh, 
beginning entrepreneurs don't have access. They're to. not social equity markets; they're equity markets. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and that's another example of of a measure you need to go year after year to push to pass. What about sports betting, internet gaming? You uh got that passed. How does that work? Right. Out? Similar with that, I think that's uh, going to uh, grow and expand. And again, we have to monitor that closely for uh, uh, abuses and and also as to whether or not uh, you know people are are being uh, lured into into bad gambling habits as a result of that. But but it was uh, important for us to uh, to adopt that. And uh, I'll tell you one story about that. When uh, when New Jersey was was working, uh, was doing that, and uh, all of a sudden they were legalizing sports betting, and all of a sudden the the major professional sports were saying, well, we need to get a, a cut of this now because uh, we're going to have to put on more security and, and be vigilant about uh, about uh, about crime and all of this. And uh, Steve Sweeney, who was then the president pro tem in New Jersey, called me and said. What a what a what a bunch of crap this is! Because these people, they seem now all of a sudden they're saying they need they need to get money in order to to do better policing, and they they seem not to be worried about it when the uh, the only people who were messing with betting were organized crime. But all of a sudden, when the state is going to be doing it, all of a sudden they're worried about corruption. You know, so he said, "Don't give them a dime. You know, don't cut them in for any portion of of what you might get out of this." All right. So Marty, before I let you go, forty three years in office, what has changed the most? Uh. Well, I think what's changed the most is the uh, the nature of constituent communication. Is that now uh, uh, emails, texts? Uh, you know, previous when I first started, it was just uh, you know phone calls and letters uh, mm-hmm. that that people would get. So, just the the nature of communication has uh, has changed. Uh, I think also the uh, 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 the parties now I think are more more ideologically defined also than they were then. They're not as much coalitions, right? The broad based, the coalition on a set of issues, right? Right. And what about your belief in the government's ability to accomplish important goals and improve lives? I continue to believe strongly in government's ability to accomplish uh, goals. That a a, uh, a principled, well-run government can be a great force for good in the lives of the people. And I continue. I believe that when I first ran, I believe it now. And that's. Uh, I'm at the opposite pole from Senator Sampson, who uh, in a floor debate in the Senate one time said, uh, "He said I can't wait for the day when the people of Connecticut won't have to pay any attention at all to what we do up here. Our role will be so minimal, so marginalized." Uh, that they can ignore what we do and it won't impact them at all. It's sort of like part of the Grover Norquist argument about I can't w- wait till government is so small that I can strangle it in the bathtub. You, you know, believe I'm, government is we. What's government, that? government is we the people in your view. Yes, I believe government Solving is we the people. Together. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, uh, you know, FDR still my hero, <laughs> and and uh, Lyndon Johnson apart from his Vietnam policy. You know, those are uh, uh, the things that work. The thing that's when government I think was uh, uh, working at its best in terms of. Uh, meeting the needs of the people and also um, uh, recognizing that there are some people who do need help that are not able to be self-sufficient and need assistance and that assistance needs to come from the government in many cases. Martin Looney, thanks for updating us on fighting the good fight. You're welcome, Paul. Always great to be with you. Congratulations again to another session. Thanks to Harry Jones behind the controls. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free. From the group CD, A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio. (laughs) 